Well, thank you for being with us today. Um, we had a couple long readings this morning, but you can see there's some big topics ahead today as we continue our studies of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we're in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, for the last number of verses, has been preparing and instructing his disciples to send them out on his kingdom-proclaiming mission. So part of the way of Jesus that we are receiving in our studies here of Matthew is that the way of Jesus is to be sent out as his followers to boldly proclaim that his kingdom is at hand. That is part of the way of Jesus. It's not optional. It's something that is central to his way because it is a blessing and it's It's a good gift to the rest of the world. That for people like us who were broken down and hungry and in pain and needing salvation, we found everything we were looking for in Jesus. True? So to find everything that we're looking for in Jesus and then to keep it to ourselves while friends and family and neighbors struggle with the same things without the good grace of the gospel, would we be like Christ if we hid it away? No. Because the motivations or the temptations behind hiding it away are often about self-preservation. They're a focus on self, a fearfulness about self that keeps us from being open and confident in offering the way of Jesus to others. So this is a challenging section of scripture for us in Matthew because Jesus is pushing Canadians into a spot we don't want to go, naturally. We don't naturally want to go there, but we actually deep down do want to go there. We do want to live this way. We do want to live confidently and passionately towards the world in a proclamation of the gospel that's genuine and authentic to who we are. So, What we come to in this section now is that Jesus wants his followers to be sent out with eyes wide open to the reality of what they will face because wherever they find people who are willing or hungry or desperate for the gospel, they're also going to find those so aligned with evil that they are the tormentors of those people. Basically, what we're seeing here is Jesus is saying his mission is to the harassed and the helpless. And in order to reach them, you're also going to encounter those who harass them and who control them and who make them feel helpless. We're going to run into, Jesus is saying, those who are in power. So we're going to unpack that starting in verse 16. So here's how Jesus starts it off. He says, Behold. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The way Jesus likes to characterize the powerful in the world is with this language of wolves. He uses it quite often. That the way evil shows up is powerful, ravenous, stalking, and devouring. And that you don't have to look for evil because evil's going to look for you. This is the nature of of kind of the wolves. This idea is that they'll come for you. You don't have to go find them. But Jesus makes it very clear from the onset, 
We aren't going out into the world as hunters. Okay? Our call, our sending is not to find the wolves and kill the wolves. That's not the goal of the kingdom here primarily. We're going out as, how does does Jesus describe it? As sheep who are fully dependent on their shepherd. The wolves are going to be, they're going to bite, they're going to attack, but this is not the nature, the primary nature of sheep. Instead, Jesus instructs in verse 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is an iconic phrase, isn't it? So keeping the biblical imagery in mind, how is a serpent wise? So throughout the scriptures, the idea of a serpent being kind of analogous, but also this picture of what evil's like, of what Satan is like, coming as a serpent in the garden. The serpent is wise because it knows evil. So how are we as followers of Jesus to be wise in the evil? Should we participate in evil so that we might understand evil? My teen kids think so. I think that's a common thing for Christian kids as they grow up is to go, well, I want to experience it. I want to know it. I want to understand it, right? I think there's some human nature components in that. I think curiosity. I think nobody likes the idea of just being you know, a Christian growing up in a little bubble hidden from the realities of the world. So is that the point? We need to go out into all the darkness of the world and experience it for ourselves to become wise in it? If not, how else are we to know how evil works? I think we know evil best by facing it dealing with it in the presence of our own hearts. Those who look intently and with repentant humility at the contents and motivations and desires and inner workings of their own heart will be wiser to evil than the boldest sinner. I think that's the reality of it. That as you face it and are brutally honest with it and desperately receive grace for it, and intentionally foster it and train that strength, train that part of you out of evil into goodness and into strength, you will know every evil known to humanity because it's already in you. And the way Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, I think, lends to this idea that if you're angry, you know what murder feels like. If you lust, you know what adultery feels like. We're all capable of these things, and these things are present within us. So by facing them and actually knowing them, and this is, I think, the thing that Christians struggle with the most, but it's really the thing we want the most, is to be honest. Let's be honest about what's in there. Talk about the dysfunction. Talk about how we're doing things we don't even want to do. And learning how Jesus loves those parts of us into salvation. How Jesus saves us from them and restores us. Who brings us from death to resurrection. I'm going to spend so many years pointing to these images. It's going to be so fun. I've been waiting a long time for this. My dream has always been 
So for those who are listening to our podcast because you're serving in kids' ministry or something, I'm talking about our new icons of Jesus that we have up. But my dream has always been to build a church that showcases these four aspects of the work and the accomplishments of Jesus. And because churches tend to feel like they have to pick one to highlight over the others. But I'd love someday to have a sanctuary where we have these four, not these exact images, but four clear pictures of the gospel built into the very structure of our, our church. You should dream for that with me, is what I'm saying. Okay, anyway, I'm off topic. What was I talking about? Oh, so I think this is the point, though, is that like people often say, oh, Ryan, how do you have insights to the scriptures like you do? And I honestly think my answer is always the same. It's just that I'm desperate when I come to the scriptures because I need to know how the gospel works to save my biggest problems. That's, that's the difference is we're going, we want to understand them historically, we want to understand them rightly, but at the end of the day, I'm starving. I need an intervention in my life and Jesus is in these words saying how he wants to do that. And I think if we truly want to know, be wise to evil, understand it, how it works, we face it in our own life. We face it in our own family and we believe in the way of Jesus there. It's easy to watch the news and say, look at how bad evil is. Evil is out there. But when you look at your marriage and go, evil is in here. And you look at your relationships with your family and you go, evil's here. But we're going to pretend we don't see it so we can get mad at the evil out there. Is that true wisdom? It's not. It's a fabrication. It's a facade. I think the true way we become wise as serpents is to know how sin works in my house, in my heart, in my friendships. I have to keep moving. Here's the thing that we see, though. The resulting character and disposition of those who know this, who have received Jesus for those real problems, is that they'll be sent out by Christ in a way that they're changed. They're innocent as doves. Now here's the thing. Innocence is not helplessness. Innocence is an assault on the very fabric of evil. Innocence is freedom in the face of tyranny. That's what innocence looks like. Is It goes, I'm wise to evil, but I want no part of this nonsense. That's true strength. Innocence is strength. Do we believe Jesus was innocent? And does it come across as pathetic or naive? Never. It's always powerful in the presence of evil, isn't it? Because Jesus cuts through the bull and says, no, that's not the real question here. The real question is sin in your house. He always brings light to it. So we're training our kids and trying to lead them into the way of Jesus. Innocence is not pathetic. Innocence is not naive. Innocence is seeing. It's sight. In a dark world going, if I play with this, it's going to cost me. If I play with this, I'm going to participate in the evil that's hurting you. Peer pressure that says, you should do this because we're all doing it, is saying, I'll join you in death. Innocence is an assault on evil, isn't it? 
And it takes boldness and strength to stand in the midst of it and say, no, that's not for me. Not because I'm not bold enough to try it or willing to go out there. It's not for me because goodness is for me. Love is for me. Life is for me. And so in a sense, yeah, it's like a dove, but peace in a world at war is bold. Now verse 17 and 18, Jesus goes on. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Now the first piece here that this is helpful for is to go, in last week's stuff, what Jesus is talking about is saying, don't do mission for approval. And this is part of it. Because you're going to find the opposite. If you need to lead people to Jesus so you feel good about yourself, you're in for a rude awakening. As Jesus is saying, you're not going out there to be affirmed. You are affirmed in me, so go out there. Because you're going to encounter some hostility. Now, The kingdom of darkness is going to see you and the message you carry as a threat, as an act of war. And Jesus singles out those in power as the ones who will be most resistant and even hostile to the message of the kingdom. So he lists off four spheres here. The courts, the synagogues who will flog you, the governors, and the kings. They're going to trump up charges against you. They're going to see, see to it that you are punished, essentially. Punished for being one with Jesus. Now here's the problem. Too often I hear Christians in their businesses, their work life, their neighbor relationships, etc. who live and work according to the same dog-eat-dog tactics of the world and then when facing the consequences of those actions claim to be persecuted for being a Christian. So hear hear me, this is one of the tricky pieces about this, is I think Western Christianity is predisposed to a bit of a victim mentality. We're being persecuted. And the Western church says this all the time. And if you travel the world and you're in the church around the globe, you realize what we're in is not persecution. We are in displeasure, disfavor, slight social discomforts. Like, it's, like I have a friend who ran a, a school in Kenya, like a Bible school, to train church planters. And so he was starting it up, and I said, well, what are you calling your school? He said, we're calling it the School of Learning to Die. And I was like, that's the name. <laughs> and, but the reality of it was that's how they saw their mission is that they knew they were going to go into the deserts, they were going to unreach people groups, didn't speak their language, were hostile to outsiders, and then near the northern borders of Kenya, they had Muslim militants that would come down and attack them. My friend was kidnapped on multiple occasions, tortured, his life threatened, stolen out of his bed, churches attacked. That's real persecution. Right? But what the West face faces generally, I don't believe is full-blown persecution. I think we should be careful using it. It was used all through COVID. And I went, "Eh, I'm not sure. 
I'm not sure I'm comfortable using that language, but we'll get into it, how some of this works. Ultimately, what we're dealing with, what true persecution is, is when one is punished, not for any wrongdoing of their own, but for believing in, following, and proclaiming Christ and his kingdom. True persecution is directly tied to Jesus himself. So here's the thing. That can also look like being punished for living according to the ways and teachings of Jesus. So if you're in the workplace and you go, I refuse to do such such and such because it's against my convictions or against my morals, and you get punished for that, 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 that's an example of true persecution. right? To go, I'm choosing to live according to the way of Jesus. He is my highest authority. This matters most to me. And somebody goes, well, that's very inconvenient for us. Or, that's not the way our business does this. We cut corners that way. It's a shortcut we use to whatever. This is how we avoid taxes, whatever, whatever the reason is. But when you choose to follow Jesus instead of that, and there are repercussions on you for that that are immoral, that's true persecution. That's the difference. Okay? But here's what we see from Jesus is that his point is, is that when you proclaim me or choose to follow me and are wrongly punished for it, you need to understand it's for my sake. Those are three very important words. It's for my sake. Jesus says the persecution we will face is for him. He knows this and is still sending you out. So why is he doing that? Because this is part of his design. And this is the beauty of it. So here's the design. He wants you to be sent out to create some discomfort by bringing in his way and to know that you're going to face some persecution And in that space to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He's saying in those spaces you're going to bear witness to the gospel to the world. And the way it benefits Jesus is because we're proclaiming it not just to the lowly, but we're hitting every layer of of society with the good news of Jesus. The witness of the church is driven by compassion for the worthy, for the the harassed and the helpless, the least of this world. But it also has the audacity to stand before governors and kings and bear witness to the one who saves. So we're hitting it at every level of proclamation of the kingdom. Now what we see in the early church and the 12 disciples is that when they do this, like our long Acts reading today, is there all these healings, right? The harassed and the helpless are finding the kingdom, but it gets the attention of who? The powerful. And so they come in and seek to discipline Peter and John, throw them in prison, angel pops them out. They go back to proclaiming the kingdom, so the religious leaders grab them again. They're like, okay, we're not going to punish you by killing you, but we'll beat you a bit, flog them, send them out, and the disciples' reaction to all of this is what? They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This is one of the ways we know if persecution is true persecution. Does it lead to rejoicing or whining? Because here's the setup. As Jesus is saying, when you follow me and you live with me and you go into the world and proclaim it, 
And I'm going to carry you through that. I'm going to fill your heart with some joy about it. And this was some of how I felt through COVID is going. I don't know if this is all the right decision, but what I do know is that if this is persecution, we should accept it. We should glory in the moment to ourselves. I know this is uncomfortable some, for some, but I honestly think if this is our opportunity to finally get some legitimate persecution, let's enjoy it amongst ourselves. Now, I, again, I don't actually think it was persecution. So I think we should have found a way to joy in the midst of hardship. Now, verse 19, he goes on. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For many of us, this is what we fear. How do I explain this? You know, when you refuse to do something unethical in your job because of your commitment to Christ, then you have this, like, how do I explain that? Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. How you're going to bring about this proclamation of the gospel is going to come from within you naturally. And here's how he says we should not be anxious about this because he's going to be so present with us, he's going to give the word. So verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So let's break this down into four parts. It's not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. It's probably all the time we're going to have for today, so I won't finish all this. So this is how powerful the sending of Jesus is. Is that the authority to go out and proclaim the message is going to be imparted to you so much so that it's not you who speaks. And it's natural to feel your smallness when you're faced with a task like this. Like, who likes public speaking? Nobody. I don't even like it anymore. Who likes having to share these things in the midst of a conflict? That's not fun. That's awkward. Who wants to talk about Jesus in the workplace? Now you're putting your hands up. Right, so there's some, there's some human discomfort around this idea of like, geez, How do I talk about this? I do think we've got to start, we have to be willing to have some awkward conversations. We've got to be willing to be ourselves in those spaces. To be honest about the fact, even just to say simple things like, I'm a follower of Jesus, and this goes against everything I believe in. I can't do this. I can't in good conscience do this. We've lost the ability in our society to even say things like, this is what my conscience says. This is what my values call me to. But here's what Jesus is saying. Don't worry, it's not you who speak. But it's the Spirit. So the Spirit of Jesus is going to be in you. It's Him doing the work and the witness. So He's going to initiate, it says in this text, in that hour. So in the moment, he's going to be narrowing things in so you have clarity of heart. But it's the spirit, and this is the part I really like how this works, of your father. So the same spirit of adoption, 
that makes you sons and daughters is also making you a witness. So this is a deeply personal thing to be talking about. Because you're bearing witness by the Spirit of your Father. So it's this like intimate place of saying, let me just tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about me and Jesus. It's not a... You're not meant to walk people through the Apostles' Creed necessarily. It's this moment for you to say, let me tell you about me and Jesus. And He's going to be speaking through you. So God in you is proclaiming the good news to the world through the unique you. Now, I need to amend the statement because it's going to drive me nuts tomorrow. What's interesting about this is what we see from the apostles when they actually give their proclamations of the gospel is it pretty much is a summary of the Apostles' Creed. So I just want to fix that before I get further. What we actually see is them going, here is the authoritative witness. Like take Stephen in the book of Acts. It's all a summary of the Old Testament. Here's God's whole story of salvation culminates in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So that's what's happening in you, is you're going, this is the once and for all time faith that I believe in, and here's me talking about that authentically. That's the work that the Spirit's doing inside of you. Now, here's what happens at this point. It's almost as if this familial language triggers in Jesus another layer of warning that involves family. So he's saying you're going to go out and you're going to receive persecution from the world, but you're going to talk about this intimately from you, this place of in the Spirit, as the Beloved, loved by the Father, and you're going to share your faith. But, heads up, this is even going to come up in your family. Verse 21. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Persecution won't be just a societal experience. It will also be a deeply personal one. Where family members will betray you as a result of their rejection of Christ. And so he breaks all these um, examples down. Brothers will betray brothers, fathers, their children, children, their parents, and even seek to have their family members put to death. We hear about stories like this a lot throughout the globe, especially when you're dealing with competing religious beliefs. We hear about this in families who come to Christ in Muslim contexts or um, Hindu contexts or other places like that. In Canada, the way it shows up primarily is I will just relationally kill you. I'll cut you off. Here's the question we come to at this point, though. What could possibly motivate people to have their own family dead to them? And I think ultimately what it comes down to is this next piece that Jesus says. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. This further warning to his disciples that they should expect to experience the hatred of everybody What does he mean by this? Surely not every person in the world hates Jesus and hates Christians, right? So why say it? 
Like, why, doesn't it seem like dramatic, overemphasized? I think here's the point. Everyone is going to hate the gospel of Jesus at some level, in some ways, and at certain times. So let me explain that. The gospel of the kingdom is good news, but it is painfully counterintuitive to everything that you have ever been taught. Ever. Everything you have ever been taught is primarily about you can do this on your own. Be independent. Determine your own future. Take life into your own hands. That's the dominant message of your life. You've got what it takes. Get it together. Work harder. Be better. That's everything about this life teaches us. And the Gospel says everything completely opposite to that. Everything the Gospel is saying is the powerful should become weak. The wise should become foolish. The mature should become children. The strong should become helpless. The righteous should become sinners. And the fulfilled should lose everything in order to have Jesus be your everything. Isn't that the Gospel? That's great news for people who have none of those things. Right? But for those who do have those things, the Gospel sucks. To them it seems like the opposite of everything they want. I don't want to lose more. I want to gain more. I don't want to be weaker. I want to be stronger. And the Gospel is saying, no, you finally get to rest And receive a God who will save you. A God who will provide for you. A God who will be enough for you. And so Jesus is saying that the messenger messenger of such good news is also bringing terrible news to those who don't want it. And you will be bound to be hated for His namesake. And here's the thing. Even the people that love Jesus and follow Jesus, even me, There are moments where I'm going through things and Jackie gives me the gospel and I hate it. I don't want to hear it. I just want to be better. When a friend gives me the gospel and says, Ryan, it's okay that you're weak. I'm mad at them because I don't want to be weak. I want to be strong. I want to be good enough. So it's counterintuitive all the time. And so here's what I think, is that the Gospel saves us thoroughly. Amen? But the Gospel drives us nuts in the parts we don't want to be saved. Amen? So this is incredibly challenging because we're going to experience the same thing in the world. Like, just like we have these, discuss, like these kind of conversations in-house with other followers of Jesus, and we know the wrestle, how much more is that going to be out in the streets? Which such good news to one person is terrible to another who doesn't want to let go of anything. That's the challenge we face in the world. But Jesus' main point in all of this is to go, it's not you actually that's so offensive. It's me. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the one people are going to wrestle with. I'm the one people are going to have a hard time with. 
Ultimately, it's a question about that individual person and me. Isn't that huge? But Jesus says to those of us who can stand in that space, knowing we're loved by Him and saved by Him, speak the truth of the Gospel to the world and endure the discomfort of those hard moments, if we can endure to the end, He says, we'll be saved. But the opposite is also true. If we succumb to the pressure and betray the name of Christ, our Beloved, He will respect your decision and you will instead be weighed by the merits of your own works instead of the works of Christ. I think that's all the time we have today. But here's what we come to, is that at the heart of any of these invitations, any of these teachings of Jesus, it's to go, you get to be with me. We go into these hard spaces because Jesus is there. We go because He's sending us to a place He is in. And we go there and the suffering that we feel and the rejection that we feel and the pain that we feel as people wrestle with their relationship with Him and what He's offering them, Jesus is saying, if you go there for me, you're there with me. And if you're there with me, you'll be with me forever. That's the promise. I'll never leave you. No matter how bad it gets, I'll always be with you. And here's the thing it leads us as followers of Jesus to, is to go, when we're in those spaces, we get to choose Jesus over everything else. Where we go, we might get to the place one day where we can say, like the early church, we joyfully accepted the confiscation of our goods. That's part of what happened in the early church. Rome said, they're not real citizens, you can plunder their homes. Take anything you want, Kick them out of their house if you want. And Christians go, I joyfully accept you stealing my home and my goods and all my possessions because I have Jesus. Jesus is everything to me. And this is nothing in comparison. That's how good Jesus must be. So for us, it's an opportunity, I think at a deeper level, to go, I want more of Jesus. I want to be that level of fulfilled in Jesus. That's the authentic way to be able to go, I can lose these things because I have Jesus. I don't need success because I have Jesus. I don't need acceptance because I have Jesus. And then we become true agents of change in the world because we're for the cause of good. We're for the cause of light because we're not participating in evil, because we're not messing around and trying to still make it in a society that's crumbling. We're wanting something different. We want a new kingdom on earth, don't we? We want a new way. We want a good way. We want true life and health and joy. And striving in this system is not working. And so it's incredibly offensive to tell somebody who's working so hard to make it in a world where everything's against them, you're running in the wrong direction. They've risked everything in the quest to climb the ladder. 
And to tell them that ladder leads to nowhere. And you're tired and exhausted and everything in you is going just one more rung. Isn't that hard news? Even if it is good news? So we should expect some of that. But it also should give us a laser focus on what we're living for. And the Jesus that we found that makes it worth it. Because His way is the good way. So let's take a moment of quiet to prepare our hearts. Have some time just 